as best you can. And you can do that if you utilize the little bit of freedom you have at this point to say, I will not indulge any thoughts about this. I will not indulge any imagination about this. What I will do instead is I will do what the moment calls for. Or I'll do something else. But I will not get back into thinking about this thing. So uh, one assumption in all of this is that we have the freedom to think about something or not think about something if we do this kind of work. And we'll discover that we do. Many people don't experience that. They think thoughts come and go like clouds in the sky. But thoughts come and go because we hold on to them. Or they stay if we hold on to them. Okay, They stay and they grow if we not only hold on to them, but we give them lots of attention. Whatever we give attention to, we give energy to. That's a basic spiritual principle. If you give attention to some kind of negative possibility, it will grow and grow and grow in your mind. Attention is a light that gives energy. In fact, whatever you give it, like if you just give attention to your right hand, you think about it, you look at it, in five minutes your right hand will have more energy than your left hand that you can measure with a thermometer. It will have more energy. Attention is that kind of light. So we see what is there, then we quit giving it attention. We see it, by we bring it to the light to see how it upsets us and it doesn't work. And there's a kind of an inner logic in us that is, is, we'll see, well, why should I continue to do this thing if it's upsetting me? Uh, and now that I see that I have some choice about this, I choose to no longer give it that kind of attention. And we let it go. <clears throat> and we give our attention to something else. And we give it energy to that. We symbolize uh, part E here, 3E, releasing the unhealthy parts of our issue or concern by trashing the paper you've written this stuff on, or by visualizing each unhealthy aspect and blowing it away. We see ourselves doing this, and we whew, blow it away. Now you might have to do that quite a few times, but this is the process. It's a bringing to light and seeing, okay, and then a letting go, a conscious decision to say, this part I'll keep, but this part I'll get rid of. And formally, in some way, letting go of that. Continue to release unhealthy preoccupation when it comes up by recognizing, releasing with the serenity prayer, then relaxing. Now, of course, the church gives us some formal ways that go even beyond a serenity prayer. You know, God help me to accept the things I cannot change. That's a good prayer to follow this up. Courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Sacrament of reconciliation might be one way to really release some of this stuff, especially if there's been some sinful elements where we've been really hurting others in a relationship, where we violated some of our moral values here. Spiritual direction is also a good place to formally bring stuff to the light and see it and let go of the parts that are unhealthy. So doing this with others can sometimes be quite helpful. This dynamic is found in the scriptures. Jesus talks about a darkness and a light. And he talks about how there's a, in, in John's gospel, how the darkness doesn't want to come into the light. 
because it will then be seen and exposed. Bringing something to the light means bringing it at least into attention where it can be seen. When something is not seen, it functions on its own without our permission. Does that make sense? What I'm saying there, when you don't know something is inside of you, then it can function more or less autonomously without your permission. When you bring it to the light, now you have a new situation. You can make a choice about keeping it or letting it go. That's kind of the old exorcism process in the scriptures too. What did they do when a person was possessed by the devil? What was one of the first things they did? It's almost like you couldn't really cast that thing out until this thing happened. You asked it what its name was, right? And once you knew its name, then you had a power over it. You could say, okay, spirit of this or that, leave this person. You brought it to a light, and in bringing it to the light, it changed the situation. And that's kind of, uh, we're not doing an exorcism here, okay? We're not necessarily dealing with devils, but we are dealing with some unconscious stuff, some old habits and attitudes we're bringing to the light. Recognizing, releasing can be, again, formal things we do, but they can go on during the day as we, go, as we just, let's say, driving the car. I just got upset about that. Yeah, you know, I got in an argument with this person about that. And what was going on in this argument? What was it that bothered me? Well, you see this part that bothered you that's pretty legitimate. And you see this part that's largely about ego. That's, you know, I felt like this person, you know, like other people were laughing at me or something like that. And I can let go of that part, but there's a legitimate part that we need to talk about some more in this relationship. And I got to get back to this guy and deal with that. But I'm going to let go of this part of this argument, all the part that concerns my bruised ego. Okay? So that can go on through the day. Finally, responding. <clears throat> uh, we say, after a few moments of quiet prayer, see yourself involved in the situation concern you've been working with, but now in a loving way. I, I really believe uh, in the power of imagination for changing. Uh, our perception and our experience of possibilities. Uh, as some of you may have experienced on an eight-day retreat, St. Ignatius made use of imagination in prayer. You would envision yourself in a gospel scene. You know, let's say you're the beggar or the blind man and you're going to Jesus and you're asking for healing. Or you're one of the disciples helping to feed the crowds and and it can be a very graced experience. I believe the Holy Spirit can enter into that and, and give us some kind of an experience of God through the imagination. Well, in a much more secular sense, uh, we, we've learned that imagination can be a powerful force for change. Sometimes what is called the New Age uses this in, in some ways to deify the self, but uh, we, we don't want to throw away the possibilities of imagination just because the new age uses it, certainly. You'll see basketball players, for example, who use imagination. They'll walk up to the foul line 
and they'll kind of close their eyes and see themselves shooting a perfect foul shot, pick up the ball and shoot. If they can see themselves doing this, then the rest follows a little better. I play a little bit better golf when I've watched pros playing golf all afternoon on TV. By watching their swing, something improves in my own swing. There's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis that uses those dynamics for tennis. If you can see yourself doing something, you can do it. And the opposite is true. If you can't see yourself doing something, you probably can't do it. If, let's say, I read the paper and discover there's a ballet class coming to town, and I go to Father Santa and say, Tom, I'm going to take that class. Would you like to take it with me? He'd say, oh, I can't see myself doing ballet. I mean, the picture he has of himself in his head doesn't wear ballet costumes and do ballet dancing. So I think that's probably or true, too, head right? Head. <laughs> in their head, too. <laughs> and maybe he can do ballet, but as long as he or any of us are saying things like, I can't do that, I can't see myself doing that, then it's for certain we cannot do it. And what we're doing is we're using this power of imagination uh, in the service of spirituality to say, I see how I used to do this. Now I'm going to see myself in this same situation, but I'm going to see myself doing it in another way. And you might envision that whole thing. There I am, and here's the same thing again, and here's this, this topic coming up, and this person is starting to kind of attack me and confront me, and I start to feel my feelings, and boy, go ahead and let yourself feel them in that exercise. I feel them starting to come up. I feel myself wanting to attack back. But instead, I just listen, and I say, and you imagine what you'll say, OK? And you see that in your head. What you've done in that imagination process, that little uh, meditation, is you've uh, created an alternative response that will be available to you the next time that comes along. So now you'll have a choice. You won't just react. You can act. You won't react, you can respond. That's how we change. It's a long, slow process. This thing, now the next thing, now the next thing. But every time we grow a little stronger, we feel a whole lot better. Like letting go of one finger of that rope, then another. And every time there's more peace, more happiness. Okay. Then we move back into the relaxing mode. So here are these four movements, uh, these four R's. And I talk about their rhythm like this. Relaxing is the most important thing. It's in the middle. That's being here now in love. Letting go of everything but that. And out of that, we're responding to what is there in this moment. I'm listening, I'm talking, I'm eating, I'm doing my work, I'm driving. I'm responding out of this mode, and that helps me to relax more and respond. This just goes around and around. But then I discover that there's some things that don't want to work like this, and so I recognize those. If I can't gently lay them aside, if they just keep insisting, okay, then I recognize them out of a relaxed response. I see them for what they are, and I release them. 
And then I'm back to relaxing. And this recognizing and releasing can be something you do through the day, or it can be a formal practice that you do at the end of the day, which would be equivalent to the 10th step of the 12 steps, which says uh, continue to take inventory and promptly admitted it when we were wrong. Or this recognizing and releasing could be uh, a formal practice of an examine of consciousness that we would do at the end of the day, in addition to little times through the day. But the ongoing stuff through the day is this relaxing and responding. Do what is yours to do today and leave the rest to tomorrow. <clears throat> That's the bottom part on the responding. So we do what we have to do. I have, a, if any of you have read through the little book I've written for Liguria, Growing in Inner Freedom, one of the chapters is on do what you're doing. So uh, it's, it's, it's a story there of a, a woman who goes to see a master and says, Master, what should I be doing right now? And uh, she says, well, he says, well, what are you doing now? Well, I'm talking to you. And what were you doing yesterday at this time? I was cutting the grass. And uh, she says, but I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. He says, well, when yesterday at this time you were cutting the grass, you should have been cutting the grass. And right now, as you're talking to me, you should be listening and talking. That's the right thing to do. And she left and she thought he was crazy. <laughs> so what is the right thing for you to do? Whatever you're doing right now, just so it's not sinful, of course, uh, objectively sinful in the sense of violating the Ten Commandments, well, do it, whatever it is. If you're working, work. You know, if you're talking to someone, try to let go of everything, all that inner self-talk, that's usually only the false self is the one doing the inner self-talk. And, you know, that's thinking about what am I going to do after this, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing and just be here now in this conversation. And you don't have to worry about you lose track of time and miss your deadline. There's, there's a wisdom there that can be trusted to say, that's enough of this conversation, it's time to do the next thing. Okay. So it's called do what you're doing. That's an old uh, spiritual discipline that used to be taught. And how much should I do today? Uh, the answer to that one is only what is necessary. So the, the little uh, slogan that's used in Growing in Inner Freedom is, never do today what can be put off until tomorrow. You like that? Yes, it, it says, uh, well, do today what you have to do today. We're not saying don't do that. It says, don't do, tom don't do tomorrow's work today, for heaven's sake, unless you want to and you enjoy it. But fulfill your daily obligations. And then if you want to do something else, uh, well, you can if you want, but you don't have to. Now, that stands the world's false self-thinking on its head, which is never put off until tomorrow, which you can do today. And for some of you, with the kind of work you do, that means you'll never go home, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, you've just got work that can be done and done and done and done, and, uh, and you never get finished. And what starts to happen after a while is your supervisor says, well, boy, this person can do a lot of work. I expect them to do that every day. <laughs> and job descriptions get rewritten and so you better be careful about how much work you do or else people can think you can do a lot so uh, do what you have to do and what is fair and just and then let the rest go and as much as possible when you leave work leave work 
go home. Don't take work home if you can do that. These things are hard to do, but they're very important spiritually to do that. When we take our work home, what happens? We're not there for our family, are we? We're not there for them. We miss that. We miss that time with them. And you can't ever get it back once you miss it. Any moment missed is gone. Those are the four R's. Are there any questions or comments about this? This is the how to get out of the entrapment of the false self. How to get out of this whole dimension of our, our, our experience that gets us out of the now and gets us anxiety, preoccupation, self-concern. Does this make sense, these four R's? Yes, question. I have a question. You mentioned um, about how the, the seer self, the, the true self in us, would recognize um, an element of the false self. Right. Are there other parts of our self, though, that could recognize, like if, if we have something that's, uh, that comes to our mind that we want to reflect on, could it, could it be from the guilt about it, like, I should be this way? Because that's the best way to be. Is that your true self really telling you that, or is that a guilt self? Or? Yeah, there are, there are other whole systems of of judgment and analysis. Uh, if you are familiar with transactional analysis, TA, that was real popular years ago. Books like I'm okay, you're okay, would talk about the parent, the adult, and the child. And the parent would be a seer that is looking at things in terms of should, ought, must. Now that's a kind of seeing that we don't want to get rid of completely because that's where a lot of our ethical values are, kind of working out of that part. Um, the seeing that I'm talking about is seeing motives. Remember, motives and centeredness are a large concern. So the seer that sees not just what I'm doing in terms of should, ought, and must, which can be the seeing of the parent dimension of the you know, of our, our whole learning. But the seer that sees what was I really doing there, not just what was I thinking, but what was I about? What was I wanting? Okay? In other words, self-honesty. Someone once told me, he says, there's a difference between truth and honesty. Honesty is a lot harder than truth. Although, I mean, that could be semantics. For example, a uh, a woman once told me, she says, I, I, she was a religious sister, she says, I told my community that I wanted uh, to go to work in campus ministry, and that was true. But what was honest was I really wanted to get away from them and have my own apartment. Do <laughs> 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 you see the difference? Okay. Uh, so in, uh, you know, honesty is a little harder, uh, but, but certainly the honest, that kind of honesty is about the, the working of the true self. The true self is seeing the motive of attention, not just the contents of attention. Okay, that's the difference. That make sense? No? Okay. It's hard to get. This whole true self, false stuff hasn't been talked about a lot, but it's very much there in the tradition. It's just we have to develop that, bring it out, talk about it some more. But the seer is that true self. It is the one that sees. Okay? So it's always there. That's that irony of that, that parable of the ropes. It's always there. 
it's like it's clouded over sometimes. There's so much noise going on with that false self that it's lost. You kind of think about it as maybe the true self is there trying to see, but the false self's making all this static and all these noise that it can't see clearly because there's all that stuff. When you remove that stuff, there it is. It's seeing. Okay? Any other questions or comments? Yes, Audrey. The true self and the ego, are they the same? Really? Are they synonymous? Or what? The ego and the, and the uh, false self. No, the false self is not synonymous with the ego in the, in the way that I use it. I would uh, see the ego as the conscious awareness, everyday experience of self. And it can be, it can have a true and a false dimension to it. So you'd speak of the ego as the structure of the conscious personality, all right? That would be a kind of a Jungian way of looking at the ego. So we can't say that the unconscious is free from the false self either. Remember I said it, 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 it's like a cancer that spreads through the whole psyche, our soul. So it, it's there in the ego, but on the other hand, the ego is the, the part of us that is taking up this challenge and responding responsibly and saying, okay, I will uh, make the decision to start working spirituality more seriously. What does that? What makes decisions is the ego part, not the unconscious. The unconscious is not making decisions like that. The ego is. Okay? But there is, of course, you know, in, in the mystical literature, a tendency sometimes to say the ego when we mean the false self. Okay. Any other questions? As I'm ready to move on to something else. And the, or would you like to spend a few minutes just talking? Let, let me go on then. And then we, we, we'll have a little time at the end to wrap up in small groups if we need. Okay. These are four things that have to go on. And uh, they, they, they can go on in a 12-step spirituality or another spirit. You'll find many other spiritualities that use these four dynamics. I'd like to develop a little more a Christian understanding of this. Because uh, you may be reading this and say, where does Jesus Christ fit in? Uh, it sounds like, well, yeah, I can pray to him. And, but this really sounds like something that I can do and don't really need him. That coming to the true self is just about letting go of the false self and who needs him. You could almost derive a kind of a Buddhist spirituality just by working these four things and that would be pretty accurate. A Christian dimension to spirituality would be this. Jesus, see what I think many Christians still need to wake up to is he doesn't just want to help us experience God or know God. He wants us to have his experience of God. Now that's a little different, isn't it? Jesus Christ wants to communicate to us his love bond with the Father. Not just God's love for us. That's nice. God loves me, I love God. What Jesus wants to give me is his love of God. And that's the Holy Spirit. So getting into this spirituality as a Christian would mean we recognize, first of all, that Jesus 
stands in two worlds, the human and the divine. We don't stand there. We stand in the human side of this equation. He stands with his feet firmly planted in both realities. He's 100% human and 100% divine at the same time. So he knows the human experience and the divine experience equally well. We would see Jesus as the one who is free of the false self completely, totally free. We would see Jesus as the one who binds himself to our soul, our human soul, wraps himself around it, as it were, and with his own energy begins to transform and renew that soul. So let's try to picture that. Pictures sometimes can say it a little better than concepts and words. Let's imagine that the human soul that has been really upset with the false self, that has been distorted by the false self, looks something like this. It's supposed to be round, but it's not. Because of the fear, the false self-conditioning it's gotten, it's, it doesn't go through life very smoothly. It's supposed to be rolling through time. But again, the Buddhist word is very good. Dukkha is a, is a word that says, uh, the wheel has the axle off-center. So can you imagine what a wheel rolls like when the axle is not stuck in the center, and go yong, 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 like that. It'll roll oblong. Or you could say the wheel is not round. So because of the false self, we have lost our wholeness, we've lost our roundness, and we're distorted. And the way we see is distorted. The way we think is distorted. What we want is distorted. <clears throat> well, by working those four things, releasing, relaxing, and so forth, something of a roundness begins to come back. We begin to let go of attachments that you know, are really hurting us. But watch what Christianity does. Jesus comes, a human being, and he's this. He's got the divine red, and he's got the human round. Okay? Let's say the divine is red. He's got both at the same time. And he lives his life, and he shows us what this kind of human life is. And he dies, and he rises, and he ascends, and where does he go? He goes right here. Look where he is now. See what you, see how that feels to think about Jesus being there. This is the historical Jesus. All right, he's one among us that we can see and look at and talk to, and he's this individual person standing right there, right? And now this is the ascended, glorified Jesus, you know, who is, as, as Scripture would say, the Logos made flesh. And he's now surrounding everything. All things are being made new in him. So it's as though he takes that soul into his body and says, I'm healthy and you're going to be healthy because you're going to grow in my body. There's a wonderful little uh, film, I think it's called The Vineyard. Sister Madeline showed it to us, remember? It's about uh, a grapevine that becomes diseased. 
and it's dying. And then one branch from that, that diseased grapevine is grafted onto the healthy vine that belongs to the gardener. It's the gardener's favorite vine. And it's grafted on, and, and it's a healthy vine. And so the sick shoot becomes healthy. That our nature is remade in him. And so his spirit, which in his life went out like this, is now like this. Of course, there's another spirit that's there too, that's working. And that's this one that's doing like this too, this, this uh, the distorted energies of the false self. 